0: Good morning again. This is Mike Bolton with Live Like Jesus. This week we will conclude our lesson, Sound Speech in Pure Language. This is part two. The first lesson came and was posted last week. We'll take the same verses for our text, but today we're going to talk about different terminologies that we use sometimes as Christians, which if they're used in their proper Uh, meaning and aspect are correct and edifying but too often we use them wrongly and they're detrimental because they teach false doctrine in colossians chapter 4 verse 6 the scripture says let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man titus chapter 2 verse 8 sound speech that cannot be condemned that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. Again, in the Old Testament, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, For then I will turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. God is holy. He is holiness personified. His people reflect his holiness. His church is the house of a holy people. We learn these scriptures. Principles from Scripture in Leviticus chapter 11 verse 45 The law says for I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God ye you shall therefore be holy for I am holy That God gave the people of Israel an intensely sanctified law is an understatement We see this command take in different form in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 the Hebrew writer says pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the lord in 1st tim peter in 1st peter chapter 1 verse 15 and 16 but as he which has called you is holy so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written be ye holy for i am holy the idea of holiness required in the life of the believer is not a new idea to the new testament holiness to the new testament holiness or sanctification was and is to come as the result of repentance look with me if you will in ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 through 24 this i say therefore and testify in the lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness again, first Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Peter refers to the idea of fashion or conforming ourselves to the world. The same idea is found in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Both have the has to do with affecting the manner of speech, the manner of dress, the mode and manner of life of the world that is around about us. And the injunction found in these passages is to flee these things. Written to all who through obedience to the word of God become the elect of God, they are to put off their former conversation. The design of God's calling is holiness, or the sanctification, or setting apart of the whole life to Him. The holiness to which we are called is essentially separation from a life of sin and worldly defilement. The words sanctify, sanctification, saint, holy, holiness are all derived from the same root word and have related meanings. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This idea of holiness or being set apart is not a mysterious change wrought by an incomprehensible operation of the Holy Spirit. Rather, it's a manner of life affected by godly conduct learned through the word of God. The command to be holy is found five times in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 11, verse 44 and 45, 9, verse 2, 20, verse 7, and 20, verse 26. They were often addressed to priests, sometimes addressed to the whole nation of Israel. But it is important to understand that Peter regarded all Christians as priests who who led in worship. And Christians are the antitype of the nation of Israel who likewise are required to be holy because the God whom we imitate, whom we serve, is holy. Just a note, very briefly on the word conversation in our old King James. Guy N. Woods, a prominent attorney and gospel preacher of the early 20th century, commented in his notes that the word conversation should be translated as manner, as manner of living. The new King James translates it as conduct. Mr. W. E. Vine says the correct rendering of the Greek word in our era should be general deportment or behavior. And the idea here is brought out is spoken of eight times in the two epistles of first and second Peter. First Peter one verse fifteen and eighteen, two twelve, three one, two sixteen, second Peter two, verse seven and three, verse eleven. Yes, eight times a major theme throughout the epistles of Peter as Peter is speaking of our behavior. But as we learned last week, we are responsible for the words that we say. To today, so today, we want to wrap up the lesson we began last week. It's our desire to talk about religious terms. Think of this. If our entire life is to be set apart, what business do we have using terms and phrases in our service to a holy God that demonstrate that teach false doctrine or demonstrate irreverence. I think irreverence is demonstrated in terms that show improper respect for mankind. Since the beginning of the Restoration Movement, we who identify ourselves as Christian have fought to call Bible things by Bible names and to do Bible things in Bible ways. There have been and are Divisions and debates over some of these issues since we set out with that purpose. The lofty goal of maintaining pure speech is a biblical mandate, as we have seen in our texts. When the Christian speaks, he must express sound or wholesome concepts and ideas that cannot be condemned or censured, so healthy or so pure that no judge will be able to find a single indictment against it. The language of the Christian should be limited to accomplish only the good for which it is designed. And there should be no room left for an impression that could do harm or be misconstrued. The words we want to look at first can be defined in three categories. All three categories relate to the leadership of the congregation. How the men are referred to in the congregation is a matter of biblical concern because it shows reverence or respect that may be undue. The first term that is offensive to Christians speaking only where the Bible speaks is the word reverend it's found only once in the old King James the psalmist David glorifies God by saying holy and reverend is his name Psalms 11 uh, Psalms 111 verse 9 this has reference to the fact that God is worthy of respect fear and awe. reverence is never used in the Bible as a title for a human being. The word rabbi. The fact is that there exists that old pharisaical spirit which loves the titles and accolades of men. These men had to be called rabbi. Today, men with the same spirit are called priest, archbishop, bishop, primate, pope, cardinal, reverend, doctor, metropolitan, apostle, president. The list can go on. The attitude that causes this blasphemy is unbiblical and ultimately rebellious. Priest. Scriptures teach that every Christian is a priest, but you are a chosen generation, generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Peter says. It is utter and complete foolishness to suggest that there is another system superior to the one that God gave when it re- regarded congregational leadership. The above listed titles are honorific ecclesiastical titles given to, by men to men. They teach that each one takes the honor due to God and bestows it on man. They are unbiblical terms for the Christian to use in reference to one another. Our next title is Father. Many religious groups use this term to refer to the leadership of congregation. Jesus says in Matthew 23 verses 8 and 9, But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 15, Though you might have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Thayer, Launida, W.E. Vine, all interpret this word as the Greek pater, which has actually several meanings. Obviously, the term refers to the progenitor of a household. It also means the beginning of a type or class of people, such as in Genesis chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. Now we have a difficulty that has arisen. The words bishop, elder, deacon, pastor, are used to refer to men who hold office in the church are we not to use them either if we are how are to we to use them and what about the office that they refer to just by way of notation Bishop is used four times in the New King James Bible 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 Titus chapter 1 verse 7 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 25 The term elder is used seven times, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, and verse 19, 1 Peter chapter chapter 5, verse 1 and 5, 2 John verse 1, 3 John verse 1. Deacon is used twice, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 and 13. Pastor is used only one time, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It is completely undeniable that these terms refer to an office in the Lord's Church. What I'm addressing here is the pastor system. The roots of the pastor system go all the way back to the apostasy spoken of by Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. By AD 200, teachers in some congregations were calling themselves priests. This practice gradually led to the priesthood of the day. Ultimately, it led to the Pope. By the time of the Reformation, men left the priesthood and became known as pastor. A pastor was, or is, a man who is selected because of his ability and education and was selected to assume the responsibility of feeding the flock, visiting the sick, doing personal work. He was, still is, a hireling in the Lord's church. Too often, this man is now localized. And he's called the minister or the preacher. We really have done nothing more in many cases than borrow the office and change the title. This doctrine teaches that ordinary men cannot edify the church or care for the house of God, and it begs the question, if I can hire a man to do my job teaching, visiting, doing personal work, then I can hire one to do my singing, I can hire one to teach my kids, why i can even hire one to take the lord's supper in my place i'm pausing to let that sink in the scripture says in first corinthians chapter 14 verse 26 through 33 how is it then brethren when you come together every one of you has a psalm a doctrine a tongue a revelation an interpretation let all things be done to edify it if any man speak in unknown tongue let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. And if anything be revealed to another that sets by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints there's it more Romans 15:14 Paul says and I myself also am persuaded of you my brethren that ye also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge able also to admonish one another 1 Thessalonians 5:11 therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you're doing Colossians 3, verse 15 and 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up good love and good works. In all these passages, the teachers are referred to as plural. And never is there one man designated to do all the teaching when there are a multiplicity of brethren. Now about those titles, bishop, episcopos, or overseer, elder, presbyterios, or elder, presbyter, deacon, oikonomos, deacon or steward, pastor, poyman, shepherd, or pastor. They all refer to the same offices, two offices, elder and deacon. The different terms help designate their responsibility. And yes, every qualification must be met before men are installed in those offices. See First Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. The word of God, may I remind you, is our first and only authority. Then I think, secondly, that there are terms that indicate and demonstrate an improper understanding of the Lord's church. We begin with the idea of the phrase going to church. This is often used as though one is going to the church building, as though the building is the church. May I remind you that Jesus didn't die for a building. Hebrews 5, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, Paul says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." his own special people. Now, N.B. Hardman once said, The kingdom, my friends, has always existed. It existed in purpose in the mind of God. It existed next in promise as delivered to the patriarchs. It then existed in prophecy, and it existed next in preparation. Last of all, when the New Testament was ratified, it existed in perfection. In light of the simple truths found in God's word, no legitimate claim can be made by any denomination to be the church that Jesus established. The modern mindset of liberalism has prodded us to be more accepting of other viewpoints and to compromise with teachers of false doctrine. We've been goaded and prodded into feeling guilty about declaring the truth as absolute and knowable. But the fact of the matter is that the Lord's church has no reason whatsoever to look back into the Egypt of fractured faith. We need to remember 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, where Paul says, If I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. We're not some building of man's genius. We're not some glorified business structure. We are the pillar and the ground of truth, and we need to start acting like it. We need to start talking like it. We don't have to go to church we get to assemble with the saints and oh, what a sweet privilege and blessing it is. The fact of the matter is that one doesn't get to join the church of his choice either. There's only one church. All other are synagogues of Satan. What's the process recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 47 of joining the church? Well, man doesn't do it by his own volition. The Lord adds to the church daily, Acts 2, verse 47, such as we're being saved. Acts 5, verse 15, the believers were added, increasingly added to the church, multitudes both of men and women, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts 11, verse 24, the condition is the same now as it was then. Believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Those are the steps to obeying the gospel. We don't choose to allow a person in as membership. Fact is one doesn't join the church at all. The Lord adds one to his church. When brethren in error see their wrong, they don't transfer their membership. They confess their wrong, repenting of their sin, and begin living a life in holiness and in godliness. We must never forget that the saved are in the church. The saved are in the church. The church is not a physical building does not have an earthly headquarters rather the church is an assembly of people who are such as should be saved let's understand too that one cannot be saved outside of the church i've heard too often you don't need the church the church never saved anyone that's contrary to scripture the reality is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 14 and 15 that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. There are some doctrinal terms, thirdly and finally, that cause quite a bit of consternation and false doctrine to be taught today. The idea, first of all, comes from a word that we're very familiar with, that we love, that we defend, that we champion in our circles today. Many today consider in the world baptism as an outward sign of an inward work. I used to, I preached it. I shouldn't have I was wrong I had no scripture I used to preach that baptism was a command to the Christian I had no scripture I was wrong I thought that one became a Christian when he or she believed I'm gonna say it again I had no scripture I was wrong the command for baptism is to believers but it is not to all believers. Let's look carefully at two passages. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Peter, while freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, commanded the people who asked this question, found in verse 37, What shall we do? He commanded them to be baptized for the remission of sins. Note they believed there was something told them to do first and that was repent that's right those who repented were given the opportunity to be baptized note 2 in verse 41 they who gladly received his word were baptized this indicates to me that some may not have been convinced we know that three thousand did there must have been more than that who heard the first gospel sermon why were they baptized well, they didn't repent they wouldn't make the good confession that's how we know they didn't repent now again this baptism isn't for every creature with the capacity to believe we read in James chapter 2 verse 19 that even the demons believe and tremble they have faith that Jesus is the Son of God they're able to make the confession but they cannot be saved James goes on and talks about the coming together of works and faith he stresses the idea of works or righteousness or obedience so we see that faith is a vital part of our salvation the kind of faith that induces obedience obedience unto salvation by being immersed in water for the remission of sins first Peter chapter 3 verse 21 there is also an antitype which now saves us baptism not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our second term is the word miracle we need to understand what a miracle is remember words have meanings it's highly important to use the right word I hear it all the time sometime even in the church it's a miracle I know we're inundated with the word on every hand put very plainly a miracle is when God sets aside the natural law that he has established and acts outside of nature. This excludes the birth of a baby. There are laws of nature that govern that wonderful event. Neither is a person obeying the gospel a miracle. There are laws that govern that wonderful event also. I contend openly and plainly that miracles simply do not happen in our time. A miracle is a special act of God that interrupts the normal course of events. That's why we cannot say for certain that such and such was a miracle. I remember well a brother who told me once that the birth of a baby was a miracle. He was quite angry after hearing my defense of the truth of biblical miracles. The birth of a baby is natural. God has established the laws that cause that to happen. I want you to note with me now. Not every act of God is a miracle. I believe that God has the hand in the birth of a child. And because of that, he is to be praised and thanked. He is acting within the laws that he has established. Does he cause any number of natural phenomena? Sunshine, rain, snow, thunderstorms, waves, ocean currents? Yes, he causes them and controls them. This is not a miracle. This is the acting of natural laws. But when these laws are set aside, that's when a miracle happens. A virgin birth? That was a miracle. Jesus walking on the water? Him raising the dead? Him speaking to the storm and calming it by words? That's a miracle. The Lord's Church is often accused of being dead because we do not believe in miracles. Remember that a miracle is when God sets aside the natural order of things and acts directly. To deny the existence of miracles today does not necessarily deny the power of God or of his work in our life. The birth of a baby, the salvation of a lost soul, the sun shining, the rain falling, it's God's work, and he deserves to be praised and thanked for it, but it's not a miracle. We need to remember that miracles were essential in proven and establishing the authenticity of the gospel. But today, according to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, that which is perfect has come, so that that which is in part will be done away. Another quick word about miracles, and then we we'll move on to our last type uh, term. There is no verifiable record of modern miracles. Very many modern miracle workers have been found and run out. Too often the supposed miracle failed because of a lack of faith on the part of the sick person. Our final term is that of tithe or contribution. In Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 through 10 we read this. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings come the answer. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. Think about this. What a wonderful promise. Here's the fact, folks. Regarding our giving on the Lord's Day morning, our contributions, those who love the Lord do not have to be forced to give. They give out of love and appreciation. And all Christians should seek to abound in this grace of giving. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7 encourages us to abound in this grace also. Under the New Testament, we have more or less an honor system of finance. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, we are to give as we have purposed in our heart. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, we are to give as God has prospered us. However, from almost every standpoint, we should not construe this liberality that we have regarding our contributions, as permission to give less we should view it as a privilege to give more we are Christians under Christ who have greater spiritual blessings than what they had under the Old Testament they were if my math serves me correctly required to give about 35% of all of their income we must give bountifully if we were to reap bountifully second corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 says but this i say that he that sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly and he that sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully let each man do according as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or necessity for god loves a cheerful giver do we rot god in the way that we give I think sometimes that we do. And I think that it is very dangerous to say that Christians tithe or have the responsibility of tithing. That idea, that concept is not found in the New Testament. Another way that we can rob God is just giving him the leftovers. In the time of Malachi, when Malachi wrote that stirring passage in Malachi chapter 3, They were guilty. The people of Israel were giving God the lame, the sick, lambs, the polluted bread. They weren't really making a sacrifice. They were not given as God had prospered them. They were trying to get God to accept what was of little value or no value, maybe, to them. Here's the thing. We must be willing to give God something of real value. The highest type of giving is sacrificial giving. We should take the 10, 12, 15, or 20% or whatever it is that we give from what we earn, not from what we have left over after we've met all of our needs, paid all of our bills, filled all of our pantry, and satisfied our desires. May I remind you of the poor widow in Luke chapter 21. She had just cast her two mites into the treasury. And Jesus says, this poor widow who who gave less, who gave such a paltry sum that is hardly worth counting. Jesus says, this poor widow has given more than all of them. For they gave of their superfluity. That is, they gave of their comfort But she, of her want, cast in all the living that she had. It's important to remember that we can rob God by not giving as we ought. But we must be very careful not to place an amount, not to place a percentage on giving when we are teaching others. It is to be from the heart, and it is to be cheerfully, 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given to the ch- orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. But this I say: He which sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he that sows bountifully shall bountifully, reap bountifully. But every man as he according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. This is Mike Bolton with Live Like Jesus. I ask you to like, subscribe, share, whatever you can do to put the word out, uh, messages and songs that are presented on this podcast. And I pray that The things that we teach are edifying to you, that they build you up in your faith and draw you closer to God. May God bless us as we all attempt to live like Jesus.